When it comes to the political and social state of this country, if we can any longer call the U.S., due to its size and so forth, a country, uh, that is in the ordinary sense of that word, I must say that concerning our politics and our social situation, the last few years have really been a doozy from the old Duesenberg automobile. A doozy. Our politicians, our courts, and our cultural institutions have successfully, and I hate to say it, transformed our society. And in a direction that I believe to be hostile to our traditional moral and spiritual roots. Now, I want to give you three examples of this in this introduction. One, our military has become a laboratory for social and sexual experimentation. The chief goal for the military is not to defend the country and win wars as it has been in the past. Rather, the military has become a place where the chief goal is to impose a new paradigm of diversity a diversity which is no true diversity at all. It's an homogenation process. And I will develop this at another time before my final day. My second example is this. The Supreme Court's ruling against the Defense of Marriage Act recently was a real blow in many ways. This ruling will have far-reaching consequences. One such consequence will be this. The battle over marriage will now morph into, and hear me carefully, a battle for religious liberty. More on this at another time before I go. These are big issues, aren't they? My final example is this. Obamacare is an attack upon the freedom of conscience and freedom of religion that we have experienced thus far. The government and economic power grab has shrunk the very ground on which you can freely walk and talk, make decisions, and exercise your liberty. Our elected officials and government officials are no longer servants of the people. To the contrary, we are their servants, and we are servants to faceless bureaucrats. They have become our masters, and we are their servants. That is my picture of the country. I, I believe it to be right. By this time, you might think I'm calling for a revolt against Babylon. <laughs> he would be wrong. My text is from the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah won't permit such. The weeping prophet counsels us in a different direction. Actually, in Jeremiah's time, that is precisely where the covenant people of God found themselves. Jeremiah is still back in the Holy Land, five, six hundred miles away. And he writes them a letter to counsel them on how to live when they have been subjugated. You might think St. Paul was the first to write a pastoral letter. I believe Jeremiah, at least in biblical literature, was the first to write a pastoral letter. And it is to these exiles in Babylon. Now, my concern today is with what the letter says. It's not a profound letter. 
it's just very practical, simple, and it doesn't need any fancy exegesis to understand what he's saying. And through the translation into our language, it's not a problem, really. There are a few places in the text, maybe where it says city, it should be translated country, a few places like that. But what I want you to see is that there are parallels between Jeremiah's day and our day. For one, the covenant people did not have access to the levers of power and control. In their case, they were a captive people. In our place, in our day, we are not a captive people. Nonetheless, we do not find ourselves, as we have sometimes in the past, at the levers of power and control. In their case, they were, if you might say, controlled completely. They were circumscribed and give some freedom so that they could do certain things. Uh, we, we have more freedom, obviously. There are differences in the parallel. But what I want to see is that in our case, Christianity has, in the last 40 or 50 years, lost its standing in society. As one bishop in the Church of England said, we now, I fear, will be persecuted in the future as Christians. Christians, or at least we've lost the consensus, the Christian consensus, and we've lost that for some time. We find ourselves in many ways at the mercy of the political process, and we are not winning the process in this democratic republic. In some ways, we are now captive to the secular ethos or the spirit of the age. To this extent, then, Jeremiah's counsel can and does apply to us today. This is what I want you to see in this sermon. Faithfulness to the Lord requires us to live a holy and godly life as we look forward to the day of God's coming and, in Peter's words, and speed its coming in Second Peter. In terms of the title of this sermon, there is a pattern for this holy and godly life and Jeremiah really sets down that pattern. In the epistle lesson that you heard today, Paul sets it down as well in other terms. Now, what I want you to see in this pattern is that Jeremiah calls upon the people in captivity to live or model a certain pattern of behavior. And as you come to Jeremiah chapter 29, and actually the text is verses 1 through 14, and probably the text should be verses 4 through 14. That is the letter itself. And that's what I will focus on. But I want you to hear him as he start out, starts out. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. They have traveled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now that is the direction that uh, we are traveling in our society. I have no doubt about that. I don't know how far we are down the road. I wouldn't say we're exactly in Babylon, but we might be close. Now, I want you to notice his instructions to them. While they are not in their homeland, or let us put it this way, they have been discomforted by external conditions. And what does he say to them? 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Well, that's some advice, isn't it? Pastor, you, you forget the conditions on the outside. I do like the quote concerning the church and its existence at some times. The church is not a perfect institution, so someone made the observation. You wouldn't be able to stand the conditions on the inside if it were not for what is on the outside. And to that extent, it's like Noah's Ark. Like Noah's Ark. As it floats, as it, uh, they had their existence. What about us? We certainly have tremendous, tremendous problems in our society. Uh, maybe I'm older and more jaded, but I see a lot of confusion. Do you? I don't think we know which direction to go in. I'm not even sure, and if you listen carefully in this sermon, that I think that secular society knows what direction to go in. It often will go in any direction as long as it's away from the tradition that this society was built upon. And so what do you do in a time like that, or to paraphrase Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? Well, you, you, you go about your daily life. Build your house. Plant your gardens. Settle down. Don't panic. Now, why not panic? Because no authority or power exists except what comes from God. Jeremiah has a providential view of history. Moreover, we see in this text that he's relying upon God's promise for the future. Go about your business. Live your ordinary life. That is terribly encouraging in a real sense. Enjoy the earth that God's given to you to enjoy. There's nothing like a garden, is there? Some of you, as you get a little bit longer in life, you say, boy, just to be able to get my hands in the soil and plant a garden. There's something very serene about that. And it's uh, energizing. It's recreation. It recreates you. For God gave us the earth and the land. And he goes on to say, here's some other things that are terribly important. Marry, he says, and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Well, is it not a crucial point in any civilization when we begin to talk about the family. He says, be fruitful, if you will, and multiply. When Moses Maimonides, a Jewish philosopher of the 12th century, began to catalog, and I think I read it in his Guide for the Perplexed, maybe in another work, he begins to catalog the commands of Scripture. Now, remember, he has just the Old Testament. 
So his purpose was to list numerically all the commands that he could find in the scripture. You think there are 10. Most Christians have reduced them to two, love God and love neighbor, and you can. But you can expand the two or the 10 to 613, he said. And he lists 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And you know what the first one is? The first command that God gives, be fruitful and multiply. And so this has something to do, not only with life on earth, but it has to do with the quality of life we live, having children and getting married and so forth. And so he commands that to be done. Now, let me put this into perspective. I know that uh, pagan values uh, also has a place for children. But that place is not our place. Pagan values almost always will exploit the child. How many times have I heard at a school meeting or some civic meeting, the children are our future? Let me tell you, those people most of the time don't know what they're talking about. They don't mean it. And they're just saying platitudes. They don't really believe the children are our future. And let me tell you why. It's a money-raising scheme more than anything else. Let me tell you why. First of all, pagan society discourages having children. They don't really think the children are our future. Pagan society puts no value really on having children, do they? I had one of the families of the church here. It was the, the, the lady, but I think it was uh, the Harwoods. And I think Shelley was shopping in. Shelley and Matthew were shopping. And they come across some guy. When he discovered they had the number of children they did, he, he showed his displeasure. You see, the enlightened really don't like children. And I have further proof of that. Just as children were sacrificed on the altar of Molech, so do we when we insist, when we insist on treating children in the womb the way we do. This is against reason and against nature. So you see, having children is not only obeying God's command, but in a real sense, this is the way that you will occupy until you are free. Just as the people of God in Egypt multiplied, so are we always to have children. And you hear me say over and over and over again, and I mean this sincerely to quote, it's deliberate, children are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, sometimes we can't have children. But it seems to me where we can, we ought to count it a privilege and a blessing from God. Now, he goes on to say, second point, and this again is an easy text. It doesn't require a lot of exegetical gymnastics to understand. It's paranetic in nature. It's practical. 
Build houses, he says, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Also passing on the faith from generation to generation. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Next, also, seek the peace. You can translate word welfare, and some do, but the word really means peace. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Wow, do you see that? What a statement. In the midst of this, Jeremiah is counseling them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for that city or that country. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, in many ways, that is shocking. Jeremiah had a difficult time selling some of his, if you will, prophecies. He was a man, for the most part, that was rejected. Even from birth, he was told that lots of his ministry would be characterized by pulling down and rooting up. But here he's saying, do good unto those with whom you live and where you move and you have your being. It's difficult now for these people to accept this because they have plenty of prophets who are prophesying out of their hearts to do one of two things, to conform and go along with everything, or to rebel. Now, some of you would like to rebel, wouldn't you? I've heard your language, your talk. I would at times. It just wells up in me. I would like to rebel and shout from the rooftops, enough is enough. And sometimes Christians do. And sometimes we just simply acquiesce and go along. Jeremiah has a positive agenda for where you live. Don't listen to the false prophets. They're going to tell you one or the other. And notice in the text, it also says that the people wanted that. Out of their dreams, they are encouraging this from the prophets. And guess what? If you're a prophet in for being a prophet... And wanting a prophet, you will prophesy what the people want. Won't you? Won't you? In the last days, people will have itching ears. And they will want that itch scratched. There are lots of people that will counsel you differently than the prophet Jeremiah. What does he say again? Again, it's just plain, simple language. And he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city or land to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Again, we meet up with Jeremiah's understanding and the biblical understanding of providence. 
Jeremiah does not try to exonerate God in any way, shape or form for the situation in which the people find themselves. He says that God sent you into exile and he will bring you out. There's no need to do anything but read the text. God is in charge. Now, sometimes in the midst of problems like this, we forget that God's in charge. Did you think God was in charge when the Supreme Court came down in the ruling against the Defense of Marriage Act the way it did? That was a real blow to this country. We have no idea what the consequences of that's going to be. Absolutely no idea where it will lead. But it cannot lead to a good end. It absolutely cannot lead to a good end. And I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about for our society. The genie is out of the bottle. I would love to be a libertarian in politics and just say, whatever happens in the civil realm, let it happen. But we're also to seek the good of society. And I pray to the contrary that God would give wisdom and understanding to those in positions of authority. And notice he says, when the city prospers or the land prospers, you too will prosper where you are. This happens to be the very same argument that St. Augustine used in City of God. The pagan leaders were saying to Augustine, you Christians belong to another land. You have your heavenly home. Therefore, you in some sense are so heavenly minded, you will be no earthly good. You are traitors in our midst. Sometimes that's arguments used against Jewish people. You will care more for Israel than for us. Maybe it's true in some cases. I know that argument was used against Christians in St. Augustine's day. You have no real interest in the place where you live. St. Augustine said, because we are citizens of heaven, we will seek your good and we will be more patriotic than you. How do you like that argument? Seems to me to be the same argument Jeremiah is using. Well, let's continue in the text. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Then he goes to the final part. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. And fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So therefore he calls them to hope. Not to judge, as the hymn writer says, by feeble standards. But to trust in God's word and promise for your life. The pagan almost always lives for the moment. They have already begun to adopt, and we have in this society, a cyclical view of life. That naturally goes with paganism. It takes a linear view of life and time to begin to appreciate the Christian hope 
When St. Augustine wrote The City of God, he was giving the West a philosophy of history that it has operated from for centuries upon centuries. And it's made all the difference in the world economically and socially and so forth. The idea that you can actually make true progress, not some false progress or using the name to take us into degeneracy, a true progress. You can improve your life. You can have an impact. You can be salt and you can be light. Now he goes on to say, you hope, for I will, the same God who sent you into exile will bring you out. You know, God sometimes does send us into exile to bring us out. We need a little bit of exile to be able to appreciate the goodness and grace of God. Sometimes it's our chastisement or discipline. If you would follow Jesus, that's part of it too. He goes on to say, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. C.S. Lewis makes a profound statement when it comes to love, and you've heard me say it a few times, but let me say it again. If you really love someone, you will seek their improvement. Not necessarily to make them feel good. Not necessarily to make that person dependent upon you. But you will seek their improvement. Think about that. Is not God seeking our improvement in Jesus Christ to lift us up and to set our feet on solid ground and to improve us through sanctification? The Greeks have a word for it, theosis, being more godlike, seeking our improvement. Then he says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from whence I have carried you into exile. There is an end. And finally, his instruction is to call upon the Lord. In earnest prayer. This is prayer, of course. I have made it a point in every service of worship in this church to pray for those who have the rule over us in the Lord. You probably get tired of that language, don't you? You probably say, here goes a formulaic expression that I've heard over and over and over. Now, you can grow tired of my idiosyncrasies. Uh, I have a few. A few ticks. As I said yesterday to a group, one of them is doing this. Does that bother you? I wring my hands. I'm not nervous. I, it's just, I saw my mother do it. I think I picked it up, and I, I stand around and do that. My wife tells me to quit all the time. <laughs> and I have certain things I say from the pulpit over and over and over. Um, 
sometimes it's really in my heart. Sometimes I guess it's a fallback position for I have nothing else better to say than some bit of can't. But that's not can't. Pray for those who have the rule over you in the Lord, says the apostle. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Seek his face forevermore. Even when you are in exile, remember such promises. Call upon me in the time of trouble and I will deliver you. Don't forget the prayer, the, the, the patterns that Jesus taught his disciples. The woman who kept knocking at the judge's door until he relented because she was pestering him. We ought not to faint ever in calling on the Lord. I've noticed something in my own life. When everything is sailing smoothly, everything is swimmingly going the way it should, I sometimes get much more into myself, which is, you didn't think possible, did you? But when things get tough, I begin to call upon the Lord. And that probably is a pattern in your life, isn't it? Sometimes hardship drives us to the place where we should be, where we ought to be, and where we should want to be. To use Chapel Fields, Coram Deo, before the face of God. That's what God desires from us. In, in the time of the Reformation... There were some strange prophets, the Zikval prophets, three of them. They counseled rebellion, rioting, bolting. Thomas Munzer, a number prophet, during the time of the Reformation, led the peasants' revolt, 30,000 strong against the authorities at B. And of course, when you have a crowd like that, it's a mob, it's mindless. It has no moral code. All they could do was destroy. God is always a God who calls us to be fruitful and multiply and to bless those around us. Yes, there are times in the ministry when you must pluck up. But when you're in a position that you are in, that's not the time. It is to submit to the Word of God. Let me close this sermon this way today. We as people always have a choice between taking matters into our own hands or simply resigning ourselves to our circumstances. We can rebel, conform to the patterns of the world. We can grow angry, discontented, and I do, about what has happened in our country. But let me tell you, rebellion and resignation are not choices. We are to be transformers of our society. The Reformed tradition is known for the notion of transforming your society, of making it a better place. How do we do this? I say by following the counsel of Jeremiah, the prophet of God, who spoke the word of God. 
As it says in verses two and three of the first chapter of this book, and I want to quote it, listen carefully. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Joash, king of Judah. When the people of Jerusalem went into exile, Jeremiah is not just giving wise counsel. This is the word of God, he says to them. And we, he says, are to be transformers of societies, always to be salt and light. This is our mandate. This is our calling at this time. And we are to exercise it from below and not from above. We're in no position to exercise transformation from above unless you get a lot of Bible-believing Christians in high places. Doesn't look promising. From below does not mean that we go underground or that we wall ourselves off from society. Just the opposite is true. We live in the world, we live in society, but we are not to allow ourselves to be shaped by pagan values and practices. The world is ever taking different forms, new forms. It loves, if you will, shape shifting, to use a modern phrase or a popular phrase. We are shape-shifting in morality. We are shape-shifting in sexual and gender identity. We are shape-shifting in politics and social patterns. Shape-shifting in religion, in philosophy. Shifting, shifting, shifting in our restlessness and discontent. That is because society lacks an anchor. It is nothing but shifting sand transit and passing away. What is permanent will endure until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would counsel you as Jeremiah did to be patient. Be patient, my friend, be patient. Be faithful, my friend, be faithful. Now is not the time to go wobbly. Now is the time to take a stand and to follow another voice, the voice of the good shepherd. No other voice will we listen to, for that voice and that voice alone leads to eternal life. It calls us upward to what endures, to what is eternal in the heavens, to God's eternal kingdom. I close with these words from Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jeremiah has provided us another pattern to live by in these days. Amen.